since the beginning of humankind. With a brain capable and curious, we searched for meaning out of the great chaotic unknown that is our world and cosmos. And faced with the great unanswerable questions, there was an answer that could explain the unexplainable. And that answer was God. And the divine was equal to the great questions of life. Mysterious, powerful, all-knowing, and most likely, very handsome. And God was great, giving us solution, meaning, and peace. For there was an answer now, and that answer was awesome! Mmm, yes, yay God! Answers and solution and meaning and things that are not unpredictable chaos, but planned. Planned with a plan. Planned with a plan that makes sense even though we don't know it. Yay! Yay, God! Yes! And just as we had evolved, so did our gods, taking every imaginable shape and form over the millennia, capturing the creative imagination of our big monkey brains. And at some point in time, there was a god for everything. There were nature gods, tree gods, and river gods, and gods of the mountains. And then there were nature gods. Bird gods, and bear gods, and wolf gods, and lion gods, and elephant gods. And warrior monkey gods. Gods of the mighty oceans and seas, sun gods, gods of life and giving fire, thunder and lightning gods, and gods who made it rain, and then gods who made it rain. Supreme Being, Heavenly Father type, who created man and woman and a paradise for them to live in, only to later kick them out for eating fruit from a shady snake salesman. Like some kind of crazy landlord who won't let you use the backyard for some reason. But then sent his son, who's also a god, but also God's son, to come be awesome for a few decades until it's time for him to be sacrificed in brutal, bloody fashion and die for our fruit-eating ways. 
Which is why you should always read signs and follow directions and observe the rules, because you never know which fucking fruit is going to get you kicked out of paradise. Or if you're like some kind of seriously evolved and woke being, you can have some kind of abstract, loosely formed new age universe kind of thing. Mysterious wonder. And good God, the subject of God could not possibly be any more complex. Because people have died for their gods, people have been saved because of their gods, and when it comes to having a higher power or not, this is just like the rest of life. There really isn't a right or wrong answer. It's a deeply personal question. But to give you some background of my history with God, if you haven't heard it yet, I was raised in a pretty loving Christian household, me and my single mom, and I was raised in a wonderful Christian community, and that's what I stuck with. I was deeply afraid of death as a little kid, and the idea of heaven was just awesome to have. It really helped me focus on other aspects of life when at one point, when I was say eight or nine years old, it became all-consuming. And it kept that way. But when I finally got sober at the age of 22, I no longer resonated with the Christian framework. And I became an atheist. As you would say, probably a hardcore atheist because I was now evangelizing for atheism and wanted to talk you out of your God and why it was all ridiculous. The really nasty kind of atheist, not the cool mind their own business kind of atheist, but something happened one day on the Golden Gate Bridge in bumper to bumper traffic. We weren't going anywhere. Maybe there was a crash, I can't remember. But either way, I was stuck in serious traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge. When I got that feeling, we all know that signals that something really bad is about to happen. I got the feeling that I was going to shit myself. Yes, instantly, in one downloaded emotion, I knew I was about to have explosive diarrhea and words came out of my mouth that had not been uttered in four years and those words were, help me God. And I ended up making it. I don't necessarily think it was because of divine intervention, but either way, I made it past the bridge and made it to a bathroom safely. But it was interesting as an atheist to realize that when shit had hit the fan, almost literally, my reaction was to reach out to a higher power. That began my journey of searching for a higher power that I would connect to. And so this episode isn't me evangelizing why you should or shouldn't have a higher power. I take no stance on that. But you should know that whether or not you believe in a god, you're an atheist. You are probably an atheist of Zeus and Thor and various other gods that were not inherited by your culture. And you're also a believer. There are a million different things that you are devout to that you are devoted to, that you praise, that you worship, just as God. God is not just a man in the sky or an absence of a man in the sky. God is something bigger than that. And here to help us parse it out is Peter Rollins, who's the author of a book that I loved and read called The Idolatry of God. But he's pretty prolific. He's written a lot of other books. I just haven't gotten a chance to read them yet. And I think we became friends. But either way, Peter is one of the most interesting minds I have ever gotten a chance to talk to, so I am very happy to release this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. On a secondary note, this episode is the start of an eight-episode, I believe eight-episode streak, 
where I am in a horrible, horrible depression. And actually, before this episode, I was in the Kaiser psych ward demanding I get an emergency psychiatric appointment because I could tell I was not well and about to enter a spiral, and I know to seek help when that happens, and luckily I did. So I literally left the psych ward, went to Peter's house, we recorded this interview, and um, that's what's true. So enjoy the next streak of episodes. It's a really interesting ride, and for today, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Enjoy this episode with my new friend and someone whose mind I love dearly, Peter Rollins. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having us in your home, Pete. Oh, listen, it's great to be part of this. Very excited. Whenever I got the email, I, I've been saying no to a lot of podcasts, but this one really struck my interest. Oh, thank you. So I'm glad we were able to make it work because you're, you're visiting from San Francisco, is that Yeah, right? the Bay Area. Oh, very nice. And you come down to LA to just interview people and... You got to come to LA because everyone comes here. Everyone comes to LA. Right. Everyone, everyone on a book tour. Through. Yeah. Yeah. So... And I have a son up north, so I can't. Oh, is that right? I'm oh, stuck wow. there. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So this Very is the good. best of both worlds. Yeah. So I like to start every single podcast this way. This can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like. But who are you? <laughs> who am I? Uh, that's a good question. There's a concept in you know, psychoanalysis called castration. You can understand it in a number of different ways, but... One way of understanding it is if, if you're being introduced or if you've got a book and they write a blurb about you or if you have a bio and you hear that read out and you're listening to the description of yourself and you're going, that doesn't sound like me. That's kind of castration. That's the difference between your public persona and who you feel you are inside to be human is to be kind of between those two things, between who you are and who you'd like to be or who you are and your presentation of who you are and that uh, we all live in this weird in-between place so that's a very abstract answer to your question who am i i am the space in between my personal anxieties and my uh my facebook bio <laughs> <laughs> i became fascinated with how people identify themselves because i can write a nice bio for you yeah as much as i hate to do it because it's mostly just reading other people's bios and then yeah. copying that into a nice bio at one stage, I probably wrote it. Like you're probably yeah. through five different filters, but it was some time I had to embarrassingly sit down and write my CV. So, yeah. Yeah. But then you ask people themselves and you might get somebody who's a commercial artist and they view themselves as an author, mm. you know, because they wrote a book and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Or I had one person who's a healer, a counselor kind of guy. And he's just like, I'm a rock star. Uh, but he just plays by himself, you know, yeah. but that's just how he sees himself. Yeah. So it's interesting. You can, you can tell a lot about yourself through that question that's good is who do you well even more so sometimes is who do you think other people see you as because often that's how you see yourself if, if anybody ever says to you oh i hate the way that person's judging me as being arrogant often you think you're arrogant and you're projecting it onto somebody else you know so whenever you look at how you think other people view yourself you can find out a lot about how you actually view yourself but you don't know like you might hate yourself but you always think people hate you, and maybe some people do, but uh, it can often be a projection of your own inner self. So it is good to listen to who you think other people think you are. It can sometimes give you insight into how you view yourself, even though you don't know it. 
you know. Who do you who do you think people view us? I think they think I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone looks at me and goes, "I wish I was like Pete." <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I have to. Uh, there was something happened recently, and it struck a chord with me. Well, let me give you an example of the structure. Actually, I was out. Uh, um, uh, I was supposed to meet a friend for coffee, and uh, he wanted to meet me at a certain place. It was a coffee shop in LA, and I looked, and I was like, it was 45 minutes from where we both lived. And I was like, why does he want to meet me at this coffee shop 45 minutes away? So I went there, I ordered some food, uh, I ordered some coffee, and just as I was paying for the food, I thought to myself, I wonder if there's a coffee shop the same name that's actually really close to where we live. And I looked, and of course there was, like two minutes away. And I had to ask myself, why did I make that mistake? And why did I only discover it whenever I'd already bought all this food? Because uh, usually I don't buy a lot of food in coffee shops. So I bought this food. I was basically pot committed to staying there. And I thought to myself, is there part of me that doesn't want to meet this person? And I thought about it. And I went, yeah, actually, there's been tension in our friendship. And I think that I didn't want to see him. So I had to listen to the circumstances because they were telling me the truth that I didn't know myself. And then I was able to contact them and, you know, have a joke about the mistake, but also say, I think I might have done this on purpose and that we were able to talk. So that, that's an example of the structure. I mean, is weirdly, you, you kind of, if you want to know yourself and your anxieties and who you are, sometimes you've got to listen to your external circumstances, what you think other people think, or look at your actions. And uh, they can often tell you the things that you cannot tell yourself. Yeah, if you look at your actions, you often find that it's a lot different than who you think you are. Mm. That's right. There's a, it, the parapraxis is the, the key here. You know, Freud talked about, you know, our, our, we can lie to ourselves, obviously, uh, but also our actions can lie as well. But there's one set of actions that doesn't lie, and it's our parapraxis. And para just means outside and praxis means action. And a, a parapraxis is like a paramilitary. So a paramilitary organization is outside the authority of the military. A parapraxis is a, a practice that is outside the authority of your consciousness. It's what you do without realizing it. The outbursts of anger for no reason, the crying at some advert completely out of the blue, the, uh, the tiredness and fatigue you get just before you're going to go out. They're, they're the actions that you're not really in control of that you actually think are so not you. The weird thing about power praxis is people think, oh, I just need to take a tablet for that. Or I could, I could get that bad back fixed. Or, or, or if I'm chewing my, my jaw at night, I can get that sorted with a gum guard. But if it's a symptom, if it's a power praxis, it's not something that's external to you. It's actually the deepest truth of you. It's listening to the power praxis that can really give us true insight. It's like one of the great secrets of recovery and the recovery groups that I'm a part of. It's mm. like you go there to stop drinking, right? Or to stop smoking meth in my case. Uh, and they, they basically say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to teach you how to stop smoking and drinking, but, um, we're, you're going to have to find spirituality like yeah. within yourself yeah, because you're, you're only, it's a symptom yes. of the problem. Yes. Yeah. That's, that, that's very, so true. I mean, I, I've been very influenced by some of the, um, the recovery groups. The thing that I find most interesting about them is you've got, you know, the 12 steps, for example, but before you get to the 12 steps, before you get to the first one, there's this step zero and I love step zero. Uh, I'm a European and our lifts start with zero, you know, in America, they start with one. 
Technically, zero is a number. In fact, zero is one because you can count up. What's zero? Well, it's one. <laughs> yeah, it's one zero. Uh, so what's step zero in recovery? For me, it's this space of grace where you just can be honest in a room of people who won't judge you, who just go, yeah, we know what it's like. And it's a place where you can finally start to be honest with yourself uh, in a community that doesn't ask you to change, doesn't ask you to do anything. But incredibly, if you experience that step zero, then it allows the other steps to be effective. But if you haven't experienced that grace, then the other steps I think are, you know, at best they'll be dogmatic kind of legalistic things that probably won't work. But if you feel that, and you call it spirituality, and, you know, I'll use the word grace here. Grace is the acceptance that you're accepted. It's kind of the opposite of self-help, because in self-help, you're always trying to move somewhere from A to B. Grace is you don't need to move anywhere. Not because you're great. I know you're shit, but uh, so are we all. It's okay. You know, you don't have to do anything. You're not okay. I'm not okay. And that's okay. But weirdly, it's that experience that allows us to change. And if you don't experience that, then change is always going to be uh, just out of reach. What is the hit or what is the drive, the payoff for, for why we do become attached to these things that are, you know, which is, I think makes a great case of why it's not all evolution, right? Because yeah. yeah. it doesn't make sense. But why do, what is the payoff to these, some of these behaviors? Because the funny thing is, and it sounds crazy to say this, but in some ways, what you might have been addicted to was not meth, but hopelessness. And, um, and actually, so I, somebody said to me, uh, an analyst, um, I was talking about a relationship where I was addicted to the highs. There was the, the highs were so incredible. And the analyst was a Lycanian, so she had never said very much. But uh, she said one thing, and it really hit me. Um, she said, maybe you're not addicted to the highs. Maybe you're addicted to the lows. And I realized that actually, although I thought I was addicted to the, like, like the gambler thinks they're addicted to the winning. No, they're addicted to the lo losing. If they won all the time, you'd get bored very quickly putting you know, pennies into a, a, a machine. You, you win money, but it's not a very fun thing to do. But the constant loss generates the fantasy of something incredible, an incredible win. And what I was doing, I think, was I was sustaining a fantasy of something complete by, by actually being attached to the constant failure. And so it's similar within prosperity churches. Where people go, well, you know, if we educate people in prosperity churches, uh, they'll know that it doesn't work because statistically there's no real difference between being in the community and outside of it. So they'll stop going and you go, no, 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 they, that doesn't work because what they're addicted to is every week you go and the failure to get the money generates this idea that if you got the money, everything would be fixed. So you're, it's weirdly by not getting the prosperity, you are more enslaved to it. If ever you did get the, get the money, you'd realize the money doesn't really work. Yeah, it gets you a nicer shower, gets you a nicer apartment, but it doesn't doesn't fix you existentially. So that that I think is the is the weird thing is sometimes the the hopelessness is is still connected to this notion of a fantasy object, what's called object A in psychoanalysis, this object that that will fix everything. What what you haven't given up. In fact, weirdly, it's like you're not hopeless enough. <laughs> you have to become so hopeless that you realize there's no object out there that will fix you. And that extreme hopelessness is actually what brings you to joy. So the dialectic is brilliant because the dialectic is always about 
not saying you, you don't go too far. It's always about saying you have to go further. So some might say like, oh, well, someone who's hopeless, um, that's very bad. Don't get hopeless. But most hopeless people are like uh, goths, teenagers, right, who are so depressed because deep down unconsciously they think there's someone who'll fix them and they don't have it. So they're, they're wallowing in this hopelessness, that not hopeless enough because they still have this fantasy of the thing. When you turn that hopelessness up to 11, <laughs> then you get freed from that frenetic lost object, which is the core of economic consumerism. You get freed from that notion and then you can experience the joy of not having. Somebody said something to me that really connected home. They said, you know, Sam, with your personality type, like the reason why you guys experience so much self-sabotage is the fear of being ordinary and average because uh-huh. you think you're exceptional, uh-huh. that you'll stop yourself from doing it just to never have to be ordinary and average. Oh, yeah. And I wrote that down on my arm. I said, I, you know, I wrote ordinary and average. Oh, and yeah. It's been helping actually quite a bit to be like, just be just be ordinary. That's very true because yeah. that, that's a there's a equivalent idea in psychoanalysis, and it, it's it's the same structure. And it sounds so counterintuitive to us, but but if you think there's a perfect person out there for you, for example, like in, if you have a relationship, it's all going to be wonderful. It can actually stop you from having a relationship. You you for two reasons. One is you never find that person; it always falls apart. Uh, and two is the weird thing is we sometimes get so attached to the fantasy of perfection that we constantly avoid getting somewhere to avoid the realization that it doesn't work. So uh, René Girard, French philosopher, told this story. He said, imagine a man who is in a rocky field and he's told that under one of the rocks there is an incredible treasure. And he says, the man goes into the rocky field and starts to pull out the rocks, but he can't find the treasure. And Girard says, eventually the man will seek a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it. And what Girard is kind of hinting at here is that we get disappointments in life, but we do want to give up the fantasy that something exceptional is out there. We can do something exceptional. And so eventually we can start self-sabotaging so we can keep the fantasy alive. But interestingly, if we can kill that fantasy off, we can get further in our lives. Because we know that publishing that book isn't going to fix the gap in our life. Getting this podcast to, you know, a a million people isn't going to make you suddenly happy with your existential angst. And when you realize that, it actually frees you to go, but yeah, I'd still like to do it. It's not going to be extraordinary. Um, And then you embrace the ordinary and that's where the extraordinary arises in the embrace of the ordinary. No, none of that stuff. I mean, I'm going to be completely frank with you. That's my uh, outtake paperwork I forgot to take out of the bag. I just came from the psych ward. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was having a rough go and I just oh. thought, man, I got to go check in with my medication. And so, you know, it's like the podcast can be doing it at its all time best. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's not it. Yeah. You know, it's And it's the same thing that you were touching on with self-help, you know, where it's like, people are selling the solution to your humanity mm-hmm. or the answer to your life where it's like, if anyone's trying to sell you the answer, run, you yeah. know, like seriously know. run because the answer often is from inside. Yeah. I mean, we are so susceptible and this, this frustrates me, um, about the, 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 the standard figure of the guru, to be honest, the, the standard person who is offering you and I some freedom from the deadlocks and the contradictions of life. 
And the problem for me is we are so susceptible to it that I have a friend who's, she's a genius. She speaks seven languages. She's uh, came top of the country in various things and went to top university. She's super smart, but she was suffering from health conditions. And she found herself believing in all sorts of unverifiable things. And she knew that it wasn't sensible. She was smart enough to know. And yet she said, I still fell for it. Because when you're in suffering, you are so susceptible to that, uh, even if you're intellectually, you know, prepared for it. So a lot of my work is about helping protect people from that, is that how do we, how do we embrace the deadlocks, the contradictions of our lives um, and find peace with those in some way without uh, falling foul of someone who wants to sell us the answer, sell us the snake oil. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because this is an idea I've been working on because part of this podcast means having to decide who I want to have on and having to have some kind of editorial integrity, mm -hmm. you know, where I've had people on who are, say, uh, food experts and about not dieting. And I notice that they're on a diet, you know, being yeah. in their home. Uh -huh. It's like, I have to draw that line. Like, oh, I'm not going to air this person. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And some of the most some of my favorite sound bites come from these gurus who mm -hmm. at some point will say something that I'm just like, I can't air that. Yes. You know, if, yeah. if somebody is dying of cancer, I can't have them hear that message, which is kind of anti-medication, you yes, know? Yes, yes, Like think positive thoughts. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. One of the greats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the scariest things for teachers to say is I don't know, mm -hmm. right? Cause they're com people are coming to you for the answers. Yeah. I think it's one of the most powerful things that anyone can say is, I don't know, yeah. because who does? Yeah. And in my eyes, the appropriate thing would be to say, I don't know, but I have this life experience that I can lend for us to figure it out yeah. together. Yeah. I like to think of it as possibly a vestige of evolutionary traits where the fear of the unknown was possible death. You know, it was a possible around the corner is a giant cat that's gonna eat you. Yeah. If you go over the mountain and try to get more food because there's not a lot of food here well you could die mm -hmm. so you, you kind of have to meet that threshold but i think that is when you're left with just yourself which is a big unknown you know mm -hmm. you're saying okay i'm just gonna really check in inward i'm really gonna try and feel how i'm feeling what i'm avoiding what triggers what do the kind of research on yourself uh, it's terrifying yeah yeah there's there's a structure in again psychoanalytic theory that's interesting to i think pertinent to what you're saying Here's, here's the interesting thing. This is in, in psychoanalysis, there is a thing called projection and transference where the individual comes in and without even thinking that they're doing it, uh, most people start to think that the analyst has the secret, some secret insight into their unconscious, some secret way of getting, helping them get rid of their pain and their suffering. And in analysis, actually what happens is the analyst doesn't reveal their humanity quickly. What they do is they allow themselves to be a screen upon which all this stuff is projected. But very gradually over the course of analysis, the revelation occurs that you're the one doing the work. You think the analyst has the secret and in thinking the analyst has a secret, that's allowing you to free associate, to think, to, to say things. Uh, so it's kind of an important transitionary thing but eventually you discover that the analyst 
is has, doesn't have the secret just like you but there is this weird move and which is you first have to believe that they do mm-hmm. and then they have to very gradually dis disabuse you of that idea and this is partly what i do in my work is somebody will come to me now there are experts obviously in fields i'm not talking about expertise i'm talking about the sense that another person is whole and complete what's called a non-castrated other the other person has it all they they can see into the secret of the universe they know who i am and we we tend like we do it with pop stars we do it with writers we do it all the time we fantasize some other who's complete but the analyst allows you to think that and then gradually they help you come to terms with the fact that no one is is like that and we're all struggling and as you realize that to be human is to be traumatized so there are the traumas that happen to you but there is the trauma that is you the traumas that happen to you are connected to your history your relationship with your parents your financial background your country you were born in but the trauma that is you is the trauma of subjectivity the trauma of being a creature of language of being a creature hurtling towards the end and once one is able to confront that really confront it to realize that you can't get rid of the inconsistency of life because you are the inconsistency of life you can find real freedom so that that move that 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 what's called a dialectic move is the one that i'm really interested in exploring in my work why are we so obsessed with hero worship then like why do we make the demigods and why do we now make the billionaires and the prodigy children the god you know the yeah. people that we worship why do we what do you think that's how does that serve us so yeah i mean so the way i would see that is that and this is where actually you know i'm more influenced by uh kind of psychoanalysis than evolutionary psychology because in psychoanalysis there's a notion that human beings are born with a sense of lack that it's kind of like this it's a uh, you know you're you're born and the first experience of selfhood is actually in relation to being separate so whenever you kind of start to pull apart from your primary caregiver there's a sense that you are separate i am not my mother my mother is not me so the first experience of selfhood is a type of separation now the trick is that it's not that you're separated it's that you are the separation your subjectivity arises out of this sense of the loss and what we're trying to do is fill that lack in all sorts of ways so we create all sorts of ways whether it's religious or secular to try to avoid this lack that we experience but the idea is that actually you can never fill the lack because the lack is part of what it means to be human um but i think so much of the hero worship and stuff like that comes out of comes out of this um and, and even more technical level if we want to look at it a little bit more is there's a thing called the mirror phase that at a certain point around 3 months old you start to think of yourself as something and so maybe your mother or your father holds you in front of a mirror and they say look at you that's you you're strong you're big you're beautiful and you start to identify with this mirror image now it's not literally a mirror that your mother might say you're just like your brother or your sister you're just oh, look look at you you know you're you're so brilliant just like your uncle now what can happen is is that you start to identify with this image and then your the gaze of your parents says that's you that's you 
But if that doesn't happen, if they start to say all these things and you start to identify with this other self, but you can't anchor it back into yourself, you start to, when you grow up, you'll, you'll start hero worshiping. You always put the good characteristics into other people. So you see a lot of hero worship you'll find is the, an individual's inability to connect with their mirror image. That was probably too technical again, so, but uh, but it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to see. Speaking of growing up, I mean, there's so much great work that you've already done that we could never even um, imagine re- trying to repeat just for the sake of this podcast. So I'm not necessarily trying to recreate conversations that I've already heard, uh-huh. but I am curious. You know, especially something that caught my imagination with your work was the work that you've done around gods and higher powers and how we structure and organize around it. Oh yeah. But I wanted to take a quick step back just to make sure that I can cut this in at some point. Yeah. Which is just how you how did you get here? Mm. Like, where did you come from? What are the major events that brought you to choosing this to be your life's work and made you want to dedicate your life to the work that you've done? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Sometimes we are the worst at knowing what created us, what made us who we are. You know, sometimes your friends are better at seeing that stuff. And a good example of this is growing up in Northern Ireland, which I did during uh, the Troubles, which was a conflict between the North of Ireland and the South of Ireland um, about basically about whether Northern Ireland should remain part of the United Kingdom or should be part of the rest of Ireland. And that was a 30 year conflict. And it probably influenced me deeply, but I never think of it like that. And it was only when I read a book, which was talking a little bit about my work, and then they were making these connections between growing up in Northern Ireland, uh, which was a, a, a city of walls, a city where people were divided. A, uh, it was a country which was not at one with itself. And they were making a connection between my own interest and how we are not at one with ourselves and how we often break, um, split the world into good and bad. And, and they were making this connection, I was like, oh my goodness, that's great. I never thought of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably true. So it's hard to talk about my influences. And again, some of the things that are most important to us, we both feel that we've chosen them and also that we couldn't have chosen otherwise. Love is a good example. When you meet someone that you fall in love with, it can feel both like a a free thing, like you're choosing to love someone, and yet also something that takes over you that you couldn't help but do. And in many ways, the work that I do now, it feels like it. I had to do it. It chose me. It feel. It felt like, you know, maybe I was. I was working through my own traumas, my own my own obsession with something that will will fill the lack. My own obsession with something that would make everything work. And for me, a lot of that was relationships when I was young. As I worked through that, I started to think about it theoretically, and then create communities that helped other people work through that. I look at it and go, yeah, I've chosen this life, but in a way I feel it's chosen me, you know. What were the traumas or moments of feeling inadequate or like you were missing something that manifested, that imprinted you? Yeah, um, I guess the most significant would be around when I was young, like in my early 20s and going through my first serious breakup Mm -hmm. and realizing the experiences that this is this is the difference between a human and other other species in many ways is that um there's a certain level of suffering of of mental anguish that's not 
reasonable. It's not utilitarian. So if you think of utilitarianism, which is the, the, the ethical theory where animals maximize pain and minimize uh, sorry, maximize pleasure and minimize pain. That's an interesting Freudian slip. You know, so we, we maximize our pleasure, we minimize our pain. Then I I looked at my own experience of life and I said, well, I'm not very utilitarian. I'm, I'm making decisions that actually are destructive to me, that I know are destructive to me. I'm holding on to the suffering of a loss that if I was purely utilitarian, like if, if, if it was natural to get rid of suffering and maximize your pleasure, why would I be caught up in fantasizing about this loss and imagining if only I could be back together with this person, everything would be perfect. And I guess both existentially, the experience of this deep suffering, and then also intellectually going, why, why is it that we do this? Why, why is it that I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of creature that holds on to pain? It takes pleasure in pain. That's a very key thing because Often if we're doing something destructive, the very difficult question for us to ask is, what am I getting out of this? What pleasure am I getting out of my suffering? And those questions became intellectually interesting to me. And to be honest, we're part of my healing process. Sometimes if you're able to reflect on your suffering, it can help a little bit. And that mix of personal trauma and intellectual questioning kind of led me into the work that I, that I currently do. Pain's an amazing one. I started blogging because of my first heartbreak. Yes. You know, I called it the end of the world part one. And I wrote a piece about how it makes no sense mm -hmm. that we would not just move on. The only thing that has ever, ever made me feel truly suicidal is heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yep. Which in terms of survival, just like, how did that get passed on that yeah. feeling? And even I noticed like colors seem brighter in heartbreak. Like you're in some kind of weird mode where it's like, yeah, well, we're going to bump your senses so you can find food or, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a form of, you know, you, I, I guess that some stuff I read about you, I was like, oh, it seems like, you know, heartbreak was one of the, the, um, the, the triggers that got you doing what you do, but also put you into a dark place, but also a creative place. It's, it's a form of, it's like, it's like heroin, you know, it's like a, uh, I've had heroin type relationships where they, that intensity both makes you feel alive, it brings you to places of incredible suffering as well. This is what's called drive in, in analysis is something that it, uh, is kind of beyond the everyday level of suffering or joy, something that, that kind of like you'll, you'll set your whole life on fire for it. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating area of human life. So how do we, how, the question is, how do we not be destroyed by this drive? But also, how do we not get rid of it? That's a key thing. That's the difference between me and, say, Westernized Buddhism, is that I'm not against this drive. This drive is what's got you doing this podcast. It's what got you blogging. It's what's kind of probably given you a vocation. It might be the thing that feels like it's destroying you, but it's also the thing that is, is, is sub you're sublimating that suffering into something beautiful, into a gift for the world. That's a good thing. And so a lot of my work is about, you know, how do we not exorcise our demons but uh sometimes how do we make them work for us i think often too when you look at demons are misunderstood you know like i know that my addiction at its core so many people will say i'm i have this thing inside me this evil thing inside me and i'm so against that because i yeah. think that deep down at its core i was a sensitive kid and my 
some part of me was trying to protect me. Yeah. And it just happened to be with like a super destructive means. Yeah. But it said, oh, wow, if you do this, you're safe. Yeah. You feel safe finally. Yeah. Even though it meant it, the cost of my body and my relationships and everything around me, hey, just stay safe. Yeah. So this is, I mean, so in, in clinical cognitive psychology, or sorry, uh, let's call it evolutionary psychology, there's this notion of instinct. It's in Dar Darwin's evolution and it works with animals. Instinct basically has three parts. An instinct is for something very discreet. It's for mating, it's for shelter, it's for food. An, an instinct as well can be satisfied. When you get the shelter, you're happy. When you get the food, you're satisfied. And then thirdly, instincts are in the service of life. Instincts help us survive. And so animals we see have instincts. One of the things that Freud discovered is this thing called drive, where he actually said, well, humans don't have instincts. He says humans have drives. And a drive comes out of instinct. So it's kind of just a, a, a twist, a perversion of instinct. But the thing about drives is that in contrast to instinct that has discrete things, a drive can be for anything, right? It can have that pull to stamp collecting, to drugs, to gambling, to, to relationships, to sex, to anything, right? It can just, it can attach to something. Secondly, it doesn't get satisfied. It just continues to want more and more and more. And then thirdly, it's not in the service of life. It can be in the service of death and destruction. The reason why drive is part of being human, one of the ways to understand it is because deep down we have that we are seared with a sense of loss. The more sensitive you are to that loss, the more you kind of want to get back to the womb. You want to get back to that oneness. Is that the original loss? Yeah, that's the yeah, original loss, okay. which I, I love. I love the theological term for it because um, I like unpopular words. And so original sin. I love the strength of it. Um, no, I'm not a confessional Christian or anything, but what I love about the word is sin can be seen purely to mean lack, to mean gap, to be to loss. And original means it comes first. So original sin just means an original loss and a, a being seared by a sense of lack. And then anything we do to try to fill that lack is going to cause destruction to ourselves or to other people. For me, it's the forgiveness of the lack is what's important. So if you think about it like this, a lack is different from a nothing. If you have no money, you're broke. But if you have debt, the nothingness is something, right? It's a, the, the <laughs> debt is like, it's a, it's a nothingness that is more intense. It's like nothingness redoubled, right? And debt ties you to jobs you hate and work you despise, might get a heart attack because of your debt, right? Now, if I pay a debt, I fill the lack with money. So if you're in debt and I pay it, I go, I'm going to, I'm going to cover his cost. He used 10 grand. I'm going to pay it. Then you fill the debt. If I forgive the debt, I don't fill the nothingness. I render the nothingness nothing. I say, see that nothingness that's something? That nothingness is nothing. And so forgiveness of debt is the answer for me, is that we have this searing sense of a lack that we're trying to fill with drugs or sex or money or fame, religion. And forgiveness of debt is not finding something to fill it. It's robbing it of its sting and going, I'm okay with the lack that I experience and the lack that I am. And the crazy thing about that is as you come to terms with that lack, you are freed from it. Are you a Christian? 
Yeah. 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 Oh, but, cool. but, but in a, it's a funny, it's a funny way that I use the term. Okay. <laughs> I, I, so I follow the, the work of philosopher Hegel. So when I call myself a Christian, I'm not talking about any form of belief, belief in gods or the Bible or anything like that. For me, there's a, there's a form of life that's, uh, that's expressed within say the Christian tradition. And that form of life, um, is one that I affirm and the form of life is subtraction from this frenetic pursuit of some lost object that will satisfy you. When you come to be libidinally freed from the idea that there is something that will fill you and you're able to embrace your lack and you're able to have a community that is centered on that lack, then that for me is the Christian experience. So it's not about theism. It's not a theist or atheism or any of those sacred or secular, nothing like that. What I do is what's called radical theology. So someone like Slavoj Žižek, a Slovenian philosopher, would be a great Christian who doesn't, you know, believe in God or go to church or anything like that. <laughs> so it's a I use the term in a in a in a particular way. Is it a familiar familiarity being a Christian? Is it like to use that framework because it's a familiar? I can't even say it. Oh yeah. Well, here here's the here's the thing. If we want to go delve deep in a bit of theology for a second, if if we imagine. Right. What is the thing that we talk? We talked about hero worship. We talk about this the idea of a non-castrated other who is whole and complete. Right. Let's imagine. Right. What is the ultimate version of the non-castrated other? Well, it's God. Right. So traditionally, God is the one who lacks the lack. When people use the word God, whatever they're describing, they're generally describing the absolute that is with, with that is one with itself that is not divided. So in Christianity, there's this really interesting thing. Uh, so one is God becomes human. Um, so that's interesting. It's called kenosis, where God empties into humanity. But then there's what can be called a redoubled kenosis. And this is where God experiences separation from God. So on the cross, if anyone who's listening knows their Christianity, God's God and Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is this is very unique. This is where God, who lacks the lack, experiences a lack, right? God experiences alienation from God. Now, the trick for me is that we all want to find some non-castrated other, something that is not lacking. To fill the hole. To fill the hole, yeah. Now, in Christianity, and I'm talking about just purely the logic of it, so, but we'll use the word God for, the, for now, is that you symbolically identify with God, and then God experiences the lack, and because you're symbolically identifying yourself with the absolute to try to escape your lack, and then what you symbolically identify with experiences the lack, you then confront your own lack. So when a Christian says, I identify with the crucifixion, what I'd say is they're identifying with this experience of the non-castrated other experiencing its own fracture. And then when that happens, the temple curtain rips which is a symbol of kind of like a, the behind the curtain is the thing that's complete and the temple curtain rips and we see there's nothing there. And then we enter into what's called the collective of the Holy Ghost, which is where people are gathered together in love. So God is no longer an object that you love, but God is the name that you give to the depth dimension in the act of love itself. So all of this to say, this is the structure that I believe we have to go through. We search for one who is without lack, we identify with them, then what we need to do is experience that that other's 
deconstruction. And then that helps us encounter our own lack. And therefore, we then enter into a different form of community. I'll give you three concrete examples very quickly. AA is a good example of a community centered around lack, where people get together from all different faiths and no faiths and rich and poor, but together broken and held together in a circle, talking in a community of grace, being able to embrace the lack. At Burning Man, the festival, is a festival now, it's all kind of new agey, but in the, in the originally was centered around the burning of a, of a, of a huge uh, effigy. effigy, which came about, and you'll probably know this, of a, of a guy who went through a terrible breakup, couldn't get over it. And him and his friends went down to the beach one day and they, they created an effigy and they set it on fire. And this destructive event was helped him mourn. And then it became bigger and bigger until it was Burning Man. And then the Last Supper, which is a meal that is centered around the death of God, the loss of something. So I'm interested in communities that where we, we, we start by trying to get avoid our lack. Like you go to an analyst because you want them to fix you, to tell you everything's going to be okay, to make everything better. And then eventually they help you confront your lack and accept it. And in that you find freedom. So that's what I mean by salvation. So I was raised Christian. Mm. And when I was a active drug addict, I was very religious, oh, yeah. actually. Yeah, because at, it's not I, surprising. I feel felt constantly like, oh, I just got saved by God. That guy pulled a gun on me. Yeah. Thank you, God. You know? <laughs> and felt very like ordained by God. Very funny. And yeah. so when I got sober, that is actually the first time where I had to confront my own beliefs of non-belief. Mm. Like when I got sober, I went, oh my God, I don't think I believe that. It was almost like an identity crisis. Yeah. And I've struggled with... Uh, most forms of organized monotheism mm -hmm. ever since it's just been hard for me to adopt in the in the modern incantations and you know i've i've never like prayed to odin or zeus yeah. but i i've always liked the flaws afforded to polytheism mm -hmm. you know it's like you can have you have these characters that represent ideals but then you have say zeus who's this but he's also a rapist mm -hmm. you know yeah. so he's all he's and the hard part for me because that's what they told me in recovery they say you need something bigger than yourself. And it could be the moon. It could be anything. It, you, you just need it. It's going to help you. I didn't do that for four years. And I'll, I'll explain what happened. But the, the hard part about the most monotheisms is that they are focused around the supreme being. Yeah. yeah. Right? And the supreme being is everything. And you're supposed to, you know, let's use Christianity. Mm -hmm. It starts with the original sin, right? So you're a broken object. Yeah. And... You're going to hop on this hamster wheel mm -hmm. trying to be a fixed object, except you can only become godlike. Mm -hmm. You'll never become a god, yeah. right? Because you're broken. Yeah. And you'll always be broken. Yeah. But we're going to try to make you less broken. Yeah. And it's a very strange kind of like wheel to be on, right? Where you're permanently, and even like this debt, like, right? You were talking yeah. about this debt that is owed that was forgiven from somebody who I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah. Like, but now I owe. Yeah. Now the debt, you know, now he's the, yeah. um, well, the, the bookie. Way, yeah. The, the, what you're describing is, is religion and religion in its sacred and secular forms is anything that says, I will take you from your experience of brokenness to fullness. Now LA is the most religious place in the world because in every corner, there's a prophet saying, I'll make you whole. You earn enough money. You look the right way. You buy the right clothes. You get enough fame. That's just religion. And that comes from, I mean, a lot of that's connected with this reading of Christianity, that 
that we're broken, we can never become like God, but you know, we can be forgiven. Da, da, da. For me, what's religionless, a religionless approach to life is where you realize that God is broken. Right, that's and for me, that's the radical blasphemy. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's from from that perspective, it's utter blasphemy, and it's crazy. Is the idea that that we discover and Hegel, a philosopher of this, he he put it in philosophy. It's called you realize the sub the substance is subject, but basically all that means is is that the move is go like I am broken, and the absolute is broken. And the brokenness is not broken. It's it's but it's different from oneness because I think the new age and and oneness theory and perennial philosophy and psychedelic enlightenment and all of these, which are very prominent within LA, and a lot of my friends are into this kind of stuff. Um, the problem with all of these perennial philosophies, let me call them, is that they 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 they're still promising oneness. The thing is, you're already one. You don't realize it. You know, it's a veil of illusions or whatever. But the, the radicality of Christianity in this non-theistic way is that saying that no, no, no. That the sense of a lack is actually here's the you know here's the interesting thing. Okay, this gets exciting. This is my latest work. Right? Is that this this lack is not just you as a human being, but it's heart baked into reality itself. That that's the insight of Hegel. And this is what we've discovered in the last 200 years. So like there's this idea that, for example, the universe is one, that that nature is one, right? Um, and if, if if it looks like it's not one, that's just because we don't have enough understanding, right? But then you have the insights of Niels Bohr, who comes along at the level of quantum mechanics. And we start to find deadlock or contradiction in the heart of reality itself. So with, with, with uh, Albert Einstein, he, he, he discovers the quantum world, but he doesn't step through the door he opens because he says, well, it must all be able to be reconciled. We just don't know how. And then Niels Bohr comes along and says, well, no, reality itself is contradictory. That's what we're discovering. Then the same thing happens earlier in philosophy. Immanuel Kant comes along and he says, when we use pure reason, we come to contradictions. He calls them anomalies. Anomalies, as he just call them. Um, but basically, where you you'll you'll come to mutually exclusive positions. Everything is freedom. Everything's determined. There is a beginning to the universe. There is no beginning. There is a god. There is no god. And so Kant says, reason antinomies. That's the word I'm looking for. Reason brings us to antinomies. It brings us to deadlocks. And so Kant says, therefore, reason doesn't get us into the heart of reality. And then the philosopher Hegel comes along and he says, oh, no, Kant was right about reason bringing us into contradictions. The only thing he didn't realize is that that gives us an insight into reality, that there's something of a deadlock in reality itself. This happens in biology with, with Darwin. Darwin comes along and finds an antagonism in biological reality. It happens in mathematics. Uh, Godel comes along with what's called the incompleteness theorem. And he shows that mathematics becomes inconsistent when it tries to map reality. But Godel then thought that that shows that mathematics can't map reality, when perhaps it was actually the insight that reality is inconsistent. Uh, Freud does it with the unconscious. The unconscious is what makes us not at one with ourselves. So here's the trick, is that we find inconsistencies in our lives. That's what a symptom is, by the way, right? If you come to me with a symptom and you're you're crunching your teeth at night, and a symptom is basically the coming together of mutually exclusive desires. So maybe you want to shout at your partner, but you also don't want to because you don't want them to leave you. 
So you're grinding your teeth at night, you know, like, like physically keeping your mouth shut. And then, you know, we, we talk and you get insights and you work through that symptom. Counseling works on the idea that eventually you get rid of all your symptoms and you become at one with yourself. In psychoanalysis, it's different. It's like, no, then you find a deeper contradiction and a deeper contradiction and a deeper contradiction until you get to the absolute insight, which is that you cannot escape the contradiction that is you. And so you come to realize that that grinding of your teeth will eventually lead you to the idea of I am a human being hurtling towards death and I have to come to terms with that. I'm a, so it's, it's basically this move not to get rid of your inconsistencies and deadlocks, but to get to deeper and deeper inconsistencies and deadlocks until you discover the deepest deadlock. And once you encounter the deepest deadlock and, and embrace that, you find freedom. That in philosophy is called absolute knowledge. In politics, it's called democracy. In psychoanalysis, it's called the cure. And in Christianity, it's called salvation. So in, in one of these groups, these <laughs> silver people groups, mm -hmm. this is like a steering committee. So we're just trying to help the meeting run smooth. Yeah. Some of us wanted a little line added to the script that the secretary of the meeting says every day. Yeah. Just, just going to say, you know, basically, if anybody's acting creepy, just let us know, you know, for newcomers. So there's no predatory men kind of trying to snatch up uh, vulnerable women who are trying to get recovered. I mean, that's just predominantly who it would be for. And there's a camp that was just like, well, that's not in the script. And, you know, I understand there's a book, right? There's a book framework, mm -hmm. big yep. book, big book. Yep. It's got the answers. Mm -hmm. I understand not wanting to touch the big book, even though that's not my style. I'm yeah. like, let's edit the big book, you yeah. know, yeah. but okay, that's sacred to them. But so they went around and they had a real problem with adding to the script. Yet the script was written probably less than three years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I raised my hand. I said, why can't we edit the script? We wrote the script. Like at, some, <laughs> at some point, a group of drunks yeah. wrote that script. You know, yes. why can't we add a line? And there was this huge problem with it. And I think that is one of the the hurdles that organized religion is going to have to overcome is like what they hold sacred. I don't know much about Christianity, but I know like so much of it comes long after Christ. Yeah. You know, and you have Saul becoming Paul, becoming the greatest salesman ever. That now means like accepting way more Gentiles. Like, don't worry about circumcision. You're in. Yeah. But, you know, before that, it was like you, you had to keep kosher, right? Yeah. I'm not a, a theologist, but all these rules kind of came on after the fact and then somehow got baked into being sacred. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. There's a there's a painting I saw. I can't remember who did it, but a, a guy who has just created a god out of rock, right, it's chipped away, and then is looking in awe and fear at his creation, and that's a beautiful analogy of the structure you're talking about, which is we create something, and then we, in a sense, are in awe and worship of of the very thing that we know we've created with our own thing. Now, again, I I'm a philosopher by training and. A, a theologian, I suppose, but but I'm just interested in the underlying structures. And so the underlying structure of how do we create our gods that we then worship? We But that's what, for me, secular society is religious. This is what we do with our pop musicians, with our stars. We create them and then we worship them. And we're worshiping ourselves through them and also hating ourselves through them when we hate them. And it's called scapegoating, where basically you take your own inner stuff you put it onto something external and then you create your, you get distance from it. 
It's what every kid does when they say there's a monster under the bed. Of course, the monster isn't under the bed, it's inside them, but they're splitting. They're putting that out, out of themselves under the bed. So yeah, this structure that you're talking about, which is where we, you know, they actually write the script that then kind of defines them. It's just a form of how I, you know, create the gods that I worship and hate and despise. All of this is, for me, versions of not being able to confront your own lack. You brought something up, which is that we're told that God made us. Mm -hmm. A big portion of that is a God that we made. Yeah. Right. And so I just thought if I could ask you what you think God isn't. Yeah. And then we can go what you think God is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not in, I'm not a biblicist or a, I'm not a Christian in the, in the, the American sense either. That kind of. Yeah. Let's take Christianity oh, yeah, off the of plate. That, yeah. Yeah. Just, so what, what God isn't. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Cause I think the word God's fascinating. I think the, the world is full of gods. Gods are whatever absolute you worship. Now, you may not be aware of what that absolute is, but it's whatever you think will make you whole and complete, whether it's money or fame or a partner or whatever. So the world is full of gods. And our job, funnily enough, as a theologian, I believe our job is to kill gods. I think that's why I'm, again, I'm interested in Christianity because at the center of Christianity is the death of God. And I go like, oh yeah, the world is full of gods and we have to, we have to try and get rid of them, right? We're, we're surrounded by them. But when you come to capital G God, I would say that what that the ultimate insight of what God is, and this is difficult because you don't start here. This is very key, right? Just to, as an aside, uh, Hegel wrote a book called Phenomenology of Spirit, where he basically followed these contradictions in, in life right to the nth degree until at the quantum level of knowledge, everything starts to fall apart. But at the beginning of the book, he says, you can't, I can't write a preface. So he writes a preface that says you can't write a preface because he says, he says, I can't tell you where I get to because you have to get there yourself. You don't start by encountering the central kind of antagonism. You actually have to journey there. So it's the same with this word God. God starts by being the absolute, the complete, the thing that you think will make you whole and complete. You start there. But if you start to critique that and follow it and and do this journey eventually you'll come to a different understanding of god that god is the name for an embrace of the rupture of life but you you have to do that journey so i almost hate saying that because it's like the cliff notes it's like you actually can't get to that understanding until you've taken the journey. Hey, listen, that's what we're all paying you for, though. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I get the, the big money for. <laughs> what is, if anything, sacred? Like, what is the what is the essence of God that we all... Because I don't know what, you, what your personal reasons for not just throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Why not just going full Christopher Hitchens, let's, let's abandon God? Yeah. See, because I, I think they haven't gone far enough. I think they're too religious still. Like when that's that's why new atheism for me, which I'm interested in, but for me, it's like you can if you get rid of a certain belief. So you can, for example, convert from one religion to another or out of religion entirely. But often, all that's changing is what you believe, not how you believe it. The the way that the belief functions. What I'm more interested in is not what you believe, but how you believe it, and it's a transformation at the level of how. And I'm interested in what I call true conversion, which is the conversion from the need to convert, conversion from the need to find something to convert to. So sometimes 
the level of certainty and the the kind of the the way that some new atheism is held it's it feels religious it's a, it's kind of it's not at the level of what is believed it's, well, it's level gnostic atheism it absolutely is religious right yeah. if you believe for sure there is yeah. no god and it, yeah. it, if that belief even if it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong if that belief is stopping you from encountering the deadlock of your own existence then it's a religious structure and it's, so it's pathological now this is interesting is people are very obsessed with facts like get, uh, getting the right answer but uh lacan a great the theorist he once jokingly said that you know if you're pathologically jealous if there's a man who's pathologically jealous that his wife is having an affair and it turns out she is having an affair he is still pathologically jealous right it's just he's also right so <laughs> it's like it's the same with like a hypochondriac if a hypochondriac thinks they have cancer and it turns out they do have cancer well they're still a hypochondriac there is a hypochondriac who happens to be right so the it's actually facts that hide pathology best. Pathology just being basically kind of an illness um, of attachment or whatever. So if you look on YouTube or whatever, and people are arguing about what's right factually, that's fascinating. But still, you could, you could have all the right beliefs, but, but the way you hold your beliefs are a way to prevent you from mourning the loss of someone you love. They, they prevent you from looking at the anxieties that you have. They prevent you from affirming life in, in a wide way. And for me, oh, that's all, well, spirituality, I, I'd love to define that word because it's so ill-defined, but, but I'll put it very simply in one way is, how, how do you affirm more of being? Because your very life is an affirmation of, of being, right? Life itself is a standing out against death, right? In one way, life is just a detour between two deaths, right? So at some stage, something popped into life for a fraction of a second and it went out of life. That could have happened billions of times. <laughs> and then at one point it lasted long enough to reproduce and then long enough to reproduce again. And eventually now the detour between death for us is about 70 years. That's pretty good. So we are, this, we, we are the detour between two deaths. So your, your very existence is an affirmation of life. Even when you were the most suicidal and you were the most negative in terms of everything, your very being was affirming life, not in some new age way, just in the fact that you were living, but your affirmation of life was very narrow, it was very small, it was minimal, it was almost flickered out. For me, what one has to try to do is help people widen out their affirmation of life, widen it and widen it and widen it. And um, whatever you believe, even if you have lots of very factually correct beliefs, if you're using them in such a way that you can't leave the house, you can't talk to people, you can't answer your phone, you can't look at your emails, right? Then I think that the, the, the way that you're believing is pathological. Yeah, I love what you said about facts because it's spurred a thought with me, which is that I've resigned myself to being a fact finder. Mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist. That's just not my lot in yeah. life. It's not my place. And so I am not terribly interested with what is objectively true. Mm -hmm. I love that people are. Yeah. Because I love objective truth. Yeah. You know, scientists yeah. that find that good for you. But for me in my small window here, I'm more interested in results. Mm -hmm. And so that is actually why I jumped back into being spiritual mm -hmm. or to having a higher power is because of results. Yeah. I noticed after four years clean and sober, I noticed my friends who had picked a God were doing better than mm -hmm. me. They just were. I couldn't argue with that. And so 
I did this hilarious thing where I group texted a bunch of guys. I said, guys, I'm going to have a God today. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I got on one knee in a locker room. It was like very ceremonial. And I said, God, I'm ready for you to take over all the things out of my control that I'm trying to control. And that night, my life blew up, which is very convenient. My girlfriend left me at the time. It was heartbreaking. I ended up at the Golden Gate Bridge that night. Wow. But I was so invested now because I had I had made the investment, right? God, are you real? And then this shit happened. And I thought, I got to follow this through. And I'm, I'm glad that I did. Mm. It, you know, and it, the first thing that I cling to was a sponsor saying, I got a God that'll work for you. You know, we'll call it the gods. Mm. And it's like, you know, when you eat some really fresh vegetables and you feel amazing, that's a God. Mm. You know, when you have very healthy sex that feels fantastic, that's a God. And so when you work towards a goal and it comes true, that's a God. If you do these things, you're spending time with God. Mm. And I just thought, well, that's fantastic. Cause if it's not real, at least I'm doing yeah. things that feel good, you yeah. know, not in a hedonistic way, but as creatures of meaning, like, do you think that, that God is only resigned to the, the conscious who can, can use it? Or is it something more mystical? Yeah, well, so yeah, it's then to talk about spirituality in relation to that. So uh, to give a provisional definition of spirituality that might approach an answer. For me, spirituality at its best, to use it almost technically, is the belief that materiality is not everything. That there is something that transcends a transcendental dimension to reality. Now then, uh, traditionally that's theism. So traditionally you go, there's matter and then there is mind. So idealism is the idea that mind grinds matter and materialism is the idea that matter grinds mind, right? But this idea that there is something beyond the material realm. However, there's also atheistic spiritualities, uh, which is that matter is non-reductive. In other words, in quantum mechanics, that the transcendental dimension is that reality is not at one with itself. As I mentioned with mathematics as well, you see this with Gödel, with, you see it in philosophy. It's simply the notion that there is a dimension of life that is not reducible to matter and motion. That does not commit you to theism. There's atheistic ways of spirituality, but the only thing that both of them reject if you're spiritual is you reject a crude form of materialism. And Paul Tillich, philosopher and theologian, he said that the role of a true theologian is to protect us from superstition on one side and crude materialism on the other. So superstition is the idea that we can have access to the transcendental, make it into an object that, that we can manipulate in some way through prayers or whatever. And then crude materialism is the idea that there is that mind is an epiphenomenon, there is nothing beyond mere matter. I like this idea of helping people to encounter or helping people to be sensitive to a dimension that is within the world, in the world, but not of it. And in psychoanalysis, it's called the unconscious. The unconscious doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's kind of reality that, that, that makes your subjectivity not at one with itself. To give you the example from Belfast, Northern Ireland, there's a city called Derry or Londonderry. You, you can't, it's got, it's one city with two names. And uh, during the Troubles, if you called it Derry, you were a nationalist. And if you called it Londonderry, you were a loyalist, unionist. <laughs> so it was a way of testing, right? If you were out at night and someone said, what do you call the city? You're like, oh my goodness, if I say the wrong thing, I might get killed, right? So eventually people called it Derry stroke Londonderry. 
And then the radio presenter started calling it Stroke City. That's what the unconscious kind of is. The unconscious is the stroke between Derry and Londonderry. It's one city, but it's not at one with itself. So that is a way of going, you can be spiritual, but not theistic or not atheistic. Uh, if, you're, if you're spiritual and you're theistic, you're going to tend towards superstition. And so much religion is superstitious. And if you're spiritual and atheistic, you're going to tend eventually towards crude materialism because that's your temptation. Both those temptations should be resisted. Um, to be spiritual is to sensitize yourself to this other dimension. And, you know, intellectually, it's also, I think, the most credible position. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's really presumptuous to to be an atheist or to be a hardcore theist. Yeah. It's like, well, who, how do you know? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, although this is the funny thing, right? Although th this is good because I, I respect what you're saying there. But I, I want to... I want, I think we can, we can make kind of big statements about that kind of thing. Yeah, let's hear it. Basically, my work began with helping people embrace doubt and unknowing, right? So anybody who knows my work, they know that I started off by looking at mysticism and the, you know, really embrace of the unknowing. But that was a step towards a kind of a dogmatic position of sorts, which was the idea that, that actually doubt and unknowing it doesn't come from a lack of experiencing reality. It actually is a reflection of reality itself because reality itself is not at one with itself. So there is a form of, there are atheists like Slavio Šizek, for example, whose, whose atheism is simply the embrace of, it's not new atheism, it's not that, but it's kind of like this sense in which our lack of understanding is actually, well, there's two lacks of understanding, right? There's a lack of understanding that comes from not reading, not thinking, not using reason. Knowledge. In, yeah. Not, well, not using, not, not like not thinking through. But then there's, there's a, a, an ignorance or an unknowing that comes from, from a lifetime of study, a lifetime of reflection. And they're very, very different. So the first type of unknowing is like, I'm young, you know, maybe I'm 30 years old and I haven't read much and I don't know much. And then there's the unknowing that comes from like Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life says, I know nothing, everything I've written is but straw. But that comes from like dedicating his life to reason. So I am tempted to say, and I'm open to being wrong about this, is that basically there's two ways of looking at the world. One is that everything's an organic whole and anything that, that, that disturbs that is contingent and can be removed. The other is to say the universe is this beautiful chaos and we have to embrace it. And then the first, here's the political dimension. And I'll say it as strongly as I can because we don't have much time. The strongest version of it is fascism. Uh, Hitler was constantly talking about society as an organic whole, uh, a kind of oneness. And then it's disturbed by a virus. And for him, it was the figure of the Jew, right? Who disturbs the organic unity of this, the system. For, for others, it might be immigrants. It might be Republicans. It might be Democrats. It might be theists. It might be atheists, right? It's like it's somebody is coming in and threatening to destabilize the relative order of the world. And I think that that is always bad because what it does is it ultimately creates scapegoats. 
you start to fantasize there's some group of people that if only we got rid of, if only we silenced them, if only we could make sure they couldn't speak, then the world would be okay. And I think that that always leads to violence. And I see it on the right and I see it as a derivation within the left as well today. The other one, which I think is right, is when you go, oh, hold on a second. The problem with society is not that it's not pure, that it's not, we haven't got the balance. It's that we haven't come to terms with the fact that imbalance is part of reality. We're always avoiding that confrontation and finding someone to blame for it, the scapegoat, the, the enemy that, that we don't like. Um, but actually, if we could come to terms with our own lack, if we could connect with the chaos that is the universe, then we could have a healthier society. So that for me is turning a negative, as in my doubt is a lack of knowledge into a positive. My doubt is actually part of the victory of knowledge. It's partly kind of an insight into reality. Anyway, that's waffly. No, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm not I'm not here to prove anyone right or wrong. Yeah. You know, but I can tell you've got a very nice way about you. You're very chilled. You're very, very, I don't know, that's probably years of hard work and suffering <laughs> that's brought you there. It's suffering. Very... So I feel like you have a mind that could easily make a, a case for atheism had you chosen that. Yeah. You have a mind that could very easily have made it a case for very popular theism. theism. Yeah, absolutely. But if it's not, you know, if we're, if we're not, using God, just for lack of a better word, yeah. for the material. If yeah. it's not some sky daddy Santa Claus that will help us get our Lamborghinis yeah. or help put food on the table, like some omnipotent conscious being. And if it's not declaration into just materialism that mm -hmm. is just here, why do, you, why do you choose to live with a God? Like what in your own life does it affords you what is the the purpose of as as you called it i love the word grace it's mm -hmm. such an inviting word right yeah is to to find that that grace yes in almost an acceptance of our flawed nature yeah and so if it's not to be saved what is it for you what is your why is it on your heart so much that yeah it you have such a short short time here yeah. we all do yeah yet you you choose to live with your time here this way yeah well for me yeah this is this is good to help me clarify as well what I'm doing is that I think it's because if, if we take, say, the Bible as an example, from the beginning, the Jewish scriptures through to Christianity, I'm interested in the process. What is the journey that's happening there? So God for me is not, it's not a word, like I don't think about God in terms of a, a static thing. What I'm interested in is a certain process of, of salvation or a process of healing, a process of almost, I would say, realigning ourselves with the uh, non-alignment of the universe. I'll say it like that. And so, for example, the Jewish tradition starts off with a type of Oedipal story, right? So the Oedipal story, as you may know, is you know, Oedipus, who wants to have sex with his mother. His father's in the way. He doesn't know it's his mother, right? But he's, he wants to be with his mother. The father is in the way, so he kills the father. He sleeps with his mother. He thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster, right? Now, one very simple way of understanding that is think of the mother as the return to oneness. It is the drug experience, the heroin experience. It's the, it's the desire just to return to the, to the one. And then think of the father as whatever gets in the way of that. Right? And then the whole story is Oedipus is depressed. He breaks through the, the things that get in the way of oneness. He gets the thing that will make him whole, and it's a disaster. Right? So that's the question. It's the whole thing of you're either melancholic or depressed. 
right? Depression is the sadness of not getting what you want. Melancholy, the sadness of getting what you want, right? So we're in this mm. incredible place. So that, you can say, see the Oedipus story as telling that, that dilemma of being human. And um, it connects with what's called the pleasure principle and the reality principle. The pleasure principle is anything you do to get pleasure. And the reality principle is anything that gets in the way of that. So you want to climb trees as a kid, but your body won't let you. That's the reality pleasure principle, pleasure principle at war. And we think that if we got rid of the reality principle and we had pure pleasure, everything would be great. But it's actually the reality principle that gives pleasure to anything, right? It's the, it's the opposition that gives you the desire. Now, of course, then the Bible starts off with an eatable story. Adam and Eve in a garden, they want this apple that will make them like God. So they'll lack the lack, they'll be whole and complete. There's a prohibition. They break through the prohibition. They think it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster. So the Bible starts off with a very brilliant insight, you know, with psychoanalytic insight into the nature of human subjectivity. In psychoanalysis, you have the superego that's always telling you if only you do X, Y, or Z, then you'll be good. You should have more sex. You should have more friends. You should be doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and in the biblical story of the serpent, which is again the superego saying, you have to eat this fruit and you will lack the lack, you will be like God, right? And we think that we have to obey the serpent or obey, obey the, the superego. But no, we have to exercise that. We have to get rid of it. And that's what grace is. Grace is the technology that frees you from uh, obedience to the serpentine su superego. So then the so biblical text starts there and then it moves through right to this point where God experiences the loss of God in the crucifixion. And we who identify with that then experience that loss in ourselves. That journey is one that I think can be personally helpful for individuals in a sense of coming to terms with your own lack. It can be politically expedient. It's, and I could save the world. And by saving the world, I mean that we're always frantically looking for something that will fix everything. And then we scapegoat. We start blaming someone for not getting it, blaming some political group, some oppositional group, and then we get into violence and conflict, and, and then we end up in war. And we are at a point in our civilization where scapegoating and this frenetic pursuit of money and objects that will fix us could be destroying ourselves, our environment, and each other. And so creating communities where we are freed not not free to pursue what will make us happy, but freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy. Because that's what the church collective is for me. It's a subversive, countercultural community of libidinal disinvestment from the lost object, which means it's freedom from the pursuit of happiness. Enough communities that experience that can have a deep impact on the future of the world. And we can move into what's called joy. And joy is the pleasure you get from not having the thing that will make you happy. Joy is the experience of pleasure you get from the struggle of life without having to have some goal at the end of it, just enjoying the, 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 the rich back and forth of existence. And so that's why I dedicate my life to this work, because I believe that that is an important thing for individuals and society, and it might be the only thing that will save us from destroying this planet and all the life that's on it. I'm so excited I got that recorded. <laughs> <laughs> this is the the last question that is going to end the interview. You've yeah. been really generous with your time. Thank you. Oh, no, not at all. I've loved this. I like to present it. So this can either be, you can either imagine it a version of yourself or just 
someone else, but I'll give you the prompt. The prompt is if I was to hand you my phone right now and on the other end of it was either you at your most vulnerable and needy and sad and lost or someone else who's just in general lost or spiraling and you could give them a brief message or give yourself a brief message that would help you become the man you are today Hmm. or help you along the way or help someone else along the way of their own journey, which we know you can't give them the answer, but a little sound bite. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Yeah. What would you want your younger self or that person to know? I guess maybe I would want to say to that myself is that you're experiencing the truth. Um, the truth that most people don't feel that we hide from. We go get drunk. We go to the movies. We hang out. We can't sit alone in silence because we don't want to face the truth of the traumas of our lives. Um, but you're feeling it right now. You're feeling the truth. And don't be afraid of that. That's a powerful thing. And what you will hopefully learn to do is find a way to affirm life in the midst of what you're feeling. Don't repress it. Don't run from it. Stay with it. Um, Try to find a community that can help you stay with that and help you not feel alone in it. But you've, you've achieved something that most of us don't achieve, which is you are experiencing the trauma that is who you are and the trauma that is life and only in finding a place to affirm that will you be able to find joy so keep going thank you so much thank you that's it for today's episode don't forget before you leave this is an audience funded program go to patreon.com slash how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human listen to the episodes early ask a question become a part of the community i need you guys it's lonely here i'd love your feedback on episodes before they come out but also you can leave us a review on itunes and don't forget if you'd like to hear from more of the guests or like to see what they're up to i include all their social media and website links in the show notes which is just the episode description thanks for tuning in to the how to human podcast tell your friends